Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by John H. Hartig to discuss his book, Waterfront Porch, Reclaiming Detroit's Industrial Waterfront as a Gathering Place for All. Thanks for tuning in. The city of Detroit was the epicenter of the fur trade, an unparalleled leader of shipbuilding for 100 years, the Silicon Valley of the Industrial Age, and an unquestioned leader in the march of democracy. My guest John Hartig's book, Waterfront Porch, Reclaiming Detroit's Industrial Waterfront as a Gathering Place for All, offers a unique history of Detroit as a city of innovation, resilience, and leadership in times of change. Waterfront Porch examines how the city's begun responding to the challenges of climate change, again redefining itself as a national and world leader on the path, this time toward a more sustainable future. This book details the building of a new waterfront porch alongside the Detroit River called the Detroit River Walk, which is meant to help revitalize the city and region and promote sustainability practices. It tells the story of one of the largest by scale urban waterfront redevelopment projects in the United States. And it gives us hope while it proves that Detroit and its metropolitan region have a bright future. I'm happy to be joined today by John Hartig to discuss Waterfront Porch. John is an award-winning Great Lakes scientist, a former Fulbright scholar, and the current Great Lakes Science Policy Advisor for the International Association of Great Lakes Research. His book, Bringing Conservation to Cities, Lessons from Building the Detroit River International Wildlife Refuge, won a gold medal from the Nonfiction Authors Association in the Sustainable Living category and a bronze from the Living Now Book Awards in the Green Living category. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about your book and about the really hopeful attitude that it takes toward Detroit. And I, you know, it's essential that we start by discussing the city itself. I wonder if you could tell us about your relationship to Detroit. How did you come to know the city and what have you learned living there? I grew up in uh, a small suburb of Detroit called Allen Park and spent all my formative years in the Detroit area. And of course, uh, we would go downtown Detroit and go to the Eastern Market. We would uh, go to Belle Isle and canoe and ride bicycles built for two. I had all these wonderful experiences. And so I got to see how Detroit has changed over time. But what has always remained is these amazing water resources, uh, you know, the Detroit River, the Rouge River and how they were once a negative for the city. And with the cleanup and revival of the Detroit River, they are now becoming an asset. The book really starts with a kind of history of Detroit. And I love in your answer that you you mentioned all of the different kinds of outdoor activities that were accessible there. You mentioned the importance of the rivers. Would you say that it's those waterways that made Detroit the center of innovation that it was throughout the 19th and 20th century? I think it's fair to say that without the waters, we would not have the kinds of leadership that we've had. I like to tell the story of Detroit from the perspective of paradigm shifts, that significant change in thinking that results in a 
completely new outlook. And so think of the fur trade era and, you know, the European continent uh, removed locally beaver from much of the European continent. And of course, the Great Lakes had plenty of them. So Detroit became an epicenter of not only collecting furs, but processing them and shipping them out. So it became a true leader in that fur trade paradigm. Just think of when we started settling the West in the United States, and they needed to move people and goods. And from the early days of schooners to steamships to our our freighters of today, Detroit was a leader in shipbuilding. Actually, during the 1890s, more ships were built along the Detroit River than any other city in the United States. So again, Detroit met the needs of the nation, in this case, the world. So then everyone knows the automobile paradigm shift, how Henry Ford perfected the assembly line and helped put the world on wheels. But there's another paradigm shift out there that Detroit is well known for, and that is the arsenal of democracy. When FDR, with the stroke of a pen, converted all civilian productivity to military productivity for one single purpose, and that was to win World War II. No place produced more jeeps and bombers and ammunition than Detroit. It was a leader of helping with the Allied victory of World War II. So now we fast forward, there's another one. Our latest paradigm shift is the sustainability paradigm shift. And everyone is low on the curve on that. We have a long ways to go, but the Riverwalk is an example of reconnecting people to these amazing water resources, improving pedestrian and cycling as modes of transportation, and connecting different nodes of the city together. So Detroit has this long history of meeting the needs of the nation and world. And, you know, it's always been resilient. It's been an innovator. And that bodes well for meeting the sustainability paradigm shift. Really like this idea of thinking about the history of the city through these different paradigms, because it also reveals the values of each of the different ages that you're talking about. You know, when you're trying to fight with the arsenal of democracy, you have all of these underlying ideas about production and military defense. And now we're talking about sustainability. I wonder if if you could say, John, a little bit about what the ecosystem is like. We sort of skipped over the period before um, European colonization. So I'm curious to know, number one, were Native peoples using that region in a similar fashion to move people and goods around? And number two, what about the landscape made it attractive uh, for that kind of human use? Yeah. First Nations, Native Americans, in our case, we have the Wyandotte of Anderdon Nation here in the Detroit metropolitan area. You know, they, they thought of these waters as sacred, right? They had an intimate relationship within. Clearly, their numbers weren't as, as great as the population density as we have today, but they really had minimal, if any, impact on these natural resources. 
But as we've gone through these paradigm shifts, you can imagine the arsenal of democracy paradigm shift when the single purpose of the United States was to win World War II. What did that mean in terms of environmental protection? There were no environmental, strong environmental laws. There were no controls on industry. Hence, vast amounts of oil and other contaminants were just dumped into these rivers and, and continued for decades. So Detroit then, by the 1960s, was one of the most polluted rivers in the United States, the Detroit River. And um, the Rouge River, the major tributary that goes into the Detroit River, even caught on fire. The oil floating on the surface and wooden debris caught on fire when somebody dropped an acetylene torch. 1969 was that. So out of that came an interest. People started speaking out. We had the first Earth Day of 1970, and the UAW and the Canadian auto workers held a wake on the Detroit River that symbolized the death of the Detroit River. And they mobilized all their workers to think about what they could do. They were a leader of the very first Earth Day. Rachel Carson uh, wrote her Silent Spring. We had the Clean Water Act. We had the Endangered Species Act. We had the National Environmental Policy Act, which is the Magna Carta of environmental laws, where more nations have modeled that than any other. So the river started cleaning up, but we had limited access to the river. And that's, that's the next part of this story. The book describes so much of the shore of the river as having been like made inaccessible by all of this industrial activity. You know, you mentioned oil and gas and a couple of other kinds of pollutants, but what really did all of that industry do to the river and the landscape around it? Just think about winter time. You know, we're in the fall right now. We're coming up on winter and as the Great Lakes freeze over normally and the Detroit River has ice, there's a few open pockets of water left. And when there was all that oil, that's where the oil was. And the waterfowl in their migrations, annual migrations, would stop and rest and feed on the Detroit River because they were looking for wild celery tubers on the bottom of the river. So they came in, got coated with oil, and they would die. We would lose 10 and 12,000 ducks in different winter duck kills. Can you imagine that? And um, a group of hunters collected one year, 1948, collected those oil-soaked carcasses of geese and ducks from the Detroit River, threw them in their pickup truck, went to Lansing, the, the capital, started throwing these oil-soaked carcasses on the steps, on the sidewalk. They called a press conference and they said, how dare you do that to the place uh, where we raise our families, where we recreate, where we live? They are now credited with starting the industrial pollution control program. So that's just one story of what happened. But it was really important that people started speaking out, even as soon as the 1940s, and clearly reached a crescendo in the late 60s and then with Earth Day in 1970. And then water quality following that started to improve. But we still had not only pollution out there, but we had, think of all this industry that dominated the shoreline that had 
concrete breakwaters and steel sheet piling that has no habitat. So it's a hard shoreline. Uh, so we started promoting soft shorelines that made it just as safe, just as stable, enhanced habitat, made it more aesthetically pleasing, and even saved some money along the way. And so the Detroit Riverwalk now has seven places where you can see soft shoreline that benefits fish and wildlife of the river. It's pretty amazing to see that transformation over time. We'll get to talking more about the walk specifically. Um, I still have questions kind of about the groundwork. And I and one of the things I'm wondering about is how those hard shorelines came to be. Is it just a question of private property and industry just sort of building whatever they want, wherever they want? Or was it just as I hear in so many other stories about our history of environmental abuse? We just didn't give a second thought to the idea that paving all of that would cause you know more havoc than we were prepared to handle. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to remember that for over a century, probably close to two centuries, the Detroit River was a working river that supported commerce and industry, you know? So before there was a bridge to Canada, you know, there were a hundred ferries that crossed back and forth between Detroit and Windsor every day. And those ferry boats had to dock somewhere. I mentioned to you that more ships were built along the Detroit River in the 1890s than anywhere in the United States. So you can imagine how busy the Detroit River was with ships. So they needed wharfs. They needed places to dock. They needed the appropriate water depth. So they hardened the shoreline and many Many. In fact, in round numbers, the Detroit River is 32 miles long, and 31 of the miles are hardened with concrete breakwater, steel sheet piling, and broken concrete as riprap. So we, we have a long ways to go, not recognizing the value and benefits of habitat. You know, you're talking about paradigm shifts and the way in which that makes reimagining the city possible. The first time I was ever in Detroit was in about 2010. And it was a city that had clearly been through the 2008 mortgage crisis and what it did to the country. Is some of that what made it possible to start thinking about like, well, we don't need all of these ferry docking places now. We're not using the river for work in the same way that we were. And so it's not until things start to get ruined that they can be reimagined as something more sustainable. Some of that was, is is true, you know, but, you know, think about this, you know, we have a waterfront that's dominated by industry with no public access. We just have little places that you can gain public access. And then some of those lands being contaminated, right? Brownfields, you can't, you don't want humans on that. And so the water quality of the Detroit River starts improving. And people say, we are not just the automobile capital of the United States and world for that matter, but we want to be known for other modes of transportation. So we want greenways. We want public access to this amazing Detroit River 
that links the upper Great Lakes to the lower Great Lakes. And so out of that thinking came a Detroit Riverwalk. They had a Blue Ribbon Committee. The mayor at that time put together lots of people. I was on that Blue Ribbon Committee. And they had tried numerous times before to do sort of a Riverwalk idea dating back to the 1800s, but none, none of them ever materialized. But in this case, you know, you had General Motors by the Renaissance Center, and they wanted, you know, Renaissance Center was like a fortress with walls around it. And the front door was on Jefferson Avenue facing away from the Detroit River. So the General Motors built a five-story glass atrium called the Winter Garden, which was the new front door of the Renaissance Center on the Detroit River. And so that became part of the Riverwalk. And the UAW GM Training Center uh, was going to open on the river. And they gave an easement so that the waterfront could be accessible, could be available for all to benefit from. So out of that came this call for a Detroit Riverfront Conservancy, a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 organization that would help build, manage, program, sustain with quality a river walk that stretches from the MacArthur Bridge to Belle Isle down to the Ambassador Bridge, about six miles, and then with greenway connections into the neighborhoods. Places like the DeQuinder Cut, the Joseph Campo Greenway, and the Southwest Greenway at the lower end of the Riverwalk. Those all to connect people in neighborhoods to the Riverwalk and these amazing natural resources that we have. What a great public-private partnership to create this amazing gathering place for all. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with John Hardig, author of Waterfront Porch, Reclaiming Detroit's Industrial Waterfront as a Gathering Place for All. You know, I think one of the really compelling things about the book is this story about what, what you call at one point uh, democratic design. You know, this idea that we could improve that waterfront through a series of committees, commissions, partnerships between nonprofits and government organizations and corporations like GM. Could you say a little bit about what the work of that committee was like? What goes into planning, you know, something as elaborate as the the Detroit Riverwalk? Well, to do something like that, you know, first you have to bring all the right folks to the table, right? And then you have to go into a listening mode. So you have to do listening sessions and design charrettes and public forums to listen to what the people want. And I think the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy did an outstanding job of that. And so out of that came recreation on the waterfront. We want a pedestrian lane and a bicycle lane. We want some habitat features. So out of that were to come butterfly gardens and native plant gardens, playscapes for children. And they wanted quiet, reflective places that would just view the river and waterfowl migrating. And, and so the whole bunch of that happened because of listening and involving the community. 
That takes a little longer to do that. But in the end, you've got validation. And that gave confidence to some of the corporations and to the foundations to step forward and help build the Detroit Riverwalk. And who did that building? Were there designers, architects, artists involved, or was it a, like a single contract? How did that come about? There are many partners in the Detroit Riverwalk. Obviously, there were landscape architecture firms and architecture firms. There were urban planning folks, and there were civil engineering firms. You know, you would break it down into smaller pieces. And so, yeah, there many people had to come together but it was a public-private partnership led by this Detroit Riverfront Conservancy and with representation from all the major, like the city and the county and major corporations and law firms and foundations. So it was well-structured initially, and then they were able to work with the community and other non-governmental organizations to make the river walk a reality. We have to remember that Detroit was the largest city in the United States to ever go through bankruptcy. That's a pretty amazing statistic. And during those most difficult times, the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy raised $110 million to build the first phases of the Detroit Riverwalk. To do that, you have to have the trust of people you have to have the partnerships and you have to have the support of many people. And I think you, you have to offer them something in exchange too, right? So the benefits are, we've talked about a number of them to the community. Certainly, I'd like to hear more about the benefits to the environment. But what did the city hope to gain from investing in this? You know, let's just say back 20 years ago, if you stood in the Renaissance Center, and, and you looked upriver and east, what you would have is a view of three sets of cement silos, abandoned and dilapidated industrial buildings, storage piles of cement and uh, limestone, surface parking lots. That was the whole waterfront looking east. What an incentive. Here you have this amazing Detroit River with 350 species of birds and a, over 100 species of fish. Just an amazing natural resource and with very limited public access. So the city immediately got it. The corporations who were downtown. Think of GM. You know, they wanted their people to benefit from this. And um, this would also help corporations attract and retain employees for their businesses. So it was pretty obvious the benefits of that, but nobody, I think, could have predicted how well it turned out in the end. You know, it was amazing. Just you now have much of the river walk done. We've got the uh, Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Centennial Park that's soon to be started. We've got the DeQuinder Cut done. We've got the Joseph Campo Greenway done. The benefits, they just held Harvest Fest last weekend and had nearly 50,000 people on the DeQuinder Cut. So there are people that are using it. 
benefiting from it. Think about kids and environmental education. Think about recreational opportunities for people of all ages, you know, even retired people and silver sneakers, a program for walkers and dog walking programs. It is an amazing place where you can see people from all walks of life. One of the things that people in the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy are most proud of is that it is welcoming to all. It is probably the most diverse place in all of Michigan, and it's only getting better every year. It's also been getting better as the book reports, you know, from the environmental perspective. What impact has it had on the state of the Detroit River and the surrounding wildlife? The cleanup of the river started before the river walk. And like I mentioned to you that we had winter duck kills due to oil pollution. How can we tolerate that? And so there was an emphasis on controlling the uh, effluence of industries and municipalities. And clearly, laws like the Clean Water Act were helpful. And we then had communities realizing that we could do better with the shoreline, that we have an amazing fishery, and these fish, to support all stages of their life history, this is to spawn. They need nursery habitats. So we could help create that. We could create stopover habitat for birds and butterfly gardens. and. You can imagine all of this came out of listening to people, this whole movement of reconnecting people to the outdoors and to nature. 80% of all the people in the United States now live in urban areas. Where's the next generation of conservationists or environmentalists or sustainability entrepreneur going to come from? It's likely going to be urban areas. And Detroit is helping the city and the region become that place. I think that's such a fascinating phenomenon. How is what's happening in Detroit begun to set a model for other cities who might be you know, looking to push in that direction? One of the early projects of the Detroit Riverfront Conservancy was an urban stormwater retention system. They were building the, the early phases of Millican State Park. And of course, we have Atwater, which is the road that parallels the Detroit River. And we had all the concrete roads and asphalt parking lots. We had rooftops. So what happens to all that stormwater? It goes into a storm, goes right into the Detroit River. So in the early phases, we could design where water comes off Atwater, comes from these parking lots and rooftops goes into a settling basin where some of the heavier things can settle out, then by gravity would flow into emergent wetlands, a braided emergent wetland system where plants are taking up nutrients and, and, and more finer particles get to settle out. And then the water goes in the Detroit River cleaner than when it started. And the thing is, is that the river walk undulates along gets down to those wetlands. So what a teachable moment of how you can do treat stormwater in a major urban area, and you can make it a teachable moment for kids, families, and schools. That's one example. 
I think the other one is soft shoreline where we can add habitat features, you know, like in front of Stroh River Place, there wasn't enough room to put the river walk. So they cantilevered out over the Detroit River with a suspended river walk. Underneath that is habitat, spawning habitat for fish. When they put in the wharf for the Wayne County Detroit Port Authority, they were able to add habitat features underwater for that. So there's some just great example in the Millican State Park design is some amazing coastal wetlands. It's going to be like a water garden, but it's going to be functioning ecologically, and it will be good for the birds and the fish and others, but it'll also be this unique place where people can get down and come close to nature. And then that becomes the teachable moment where we can teach about stewardship of these places, about conservation and environmental protection. Yeah, you mentioned earlier the idea of greenways, that neighborhoods within the city are using greenways to access the Riverwalk. Is that sustainable ideology and those kinds of green spaces finding its way into greater Detroit now? Absolutely. You know, think of uh, the city of Detroit now has the Joe Lewis Greenway, which is the next big project, which will be a greenway tail that sort of circumnavigates the city that connects all the people to uh, the Joe Lewis Greenway to the Riverwalk and the Detroit River. We are so fortunate in Southeast Michigan to have the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan. They have been at this for over two decades now in helping communities in metropolitan Detroit make match on greenways grants. If you historically look back, when there's tough budget times, one of the first things that gets cut are recreation funds for cities. The Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan created a fund where they could eliminate that obstacle. They provided the match for Greenways grants, and they've helped so many communities in Southeast Michigan build hundreds of miles of Greenway trails. So because we were the automobile capital of the United States, we lagged behind in that for many years. But thanks to the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan and many others, we are rapidly catching up. And now I would argue that we are becoming a leader in this and reconnecting people to nature and making nature part of everyday urban life. You know, John, we were talking a little bit about climate change before we started recording. And one of the things that really struck me about Waterfront Porch is like what a hopeful story it is, like the degree to which, like what you've just said, making nature a part of everyday urban life is actually possible and not just possible, but profitable, enjoyable, educational, you know, all of these great benefits that you're talking about. Are you optimistic about our response to climate change as a sort of larger culture? I am very concerned about climate change. It is the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. And in, in the Great Lakes, we call climate change a threat multiplier. So climate change can make urban stormwater 
runoff worse because you have increasing frequency and severity of storms. Therefore, you have more runoff. That means you have more problems. Think of climate change making algal blooms, you know, harmful algal blooms in Western Lake Erie worse. Think about some of the like high water levels that we're experiencing right now and how when winds blow out of the east, water comes into the upper end of the Detroit River and floods what they call Gray Haven, you know, Jefferson Chalmers area. And they now have to have these tiger dams, these four and five foot tall big tubes that they fill up with water to keep the water from entering houses in that. We have businesses and restaurants on the Detroit River that have had six and eight inches of water in their parking lot and had to close the restaurant before COVID because of this increasing frequency and severity of storms. So I am concerned about that. We need everyone to get involved in that. Everyone's going to have a role in that. And it's really going to be challenging with the climate change deniers and with the disinformation that goes on out there. The science is compelling. If you follow this whole thinking on precautionary principle, that if the weight of evidence is overwhelming, you don't wait, you act as quickly as possible. We are at that point on climate change, and we need to take this seriously. You can look at all the big cities and, and flooding that they have. You look at the forest fires in the West. You look at the droughts in certain places. I think there was a, a, a recent study that showed 80% of the people in the world are now affected by climate change. The time to act is now. It's a powerful message. And I think it is helpfully buttressed by the book, which shows some ways of action that I think offer a really compelling counterpoint to the complaint you tend to hear from people who don't want to act, which is one of like fear of deprivation or fear of lifestyle change that would degrade the quality of life. And Waterfront Porch really shows that it can be the opposite, that we can take these concerns seriously and act on them and improve quality of life and, you know, all of the other things that, that are happening there in the city of Detroit. Yes, that's really true. I mean, it's just, it's such a, if people haven't been to Detroit, even in the last couple of years, you will be surprised. Come down to the Riverwalk. They had a competition this year for USA Today to identify the number one Riverwalk in the United States. And that's the Detroit Riverwalk. Can you imagine that? What an honor, but recognizing what is going on in Detroit and the value and benefit of that. I mentioned to you before, Kurt, that in the first 10 years, during the time when the city of Detroit went through bankruptcy, the largest city in the United States to go through bankruptcy, they raised $110 million to build the first portions of the Detroit Riverwalk. They did an economic benefit study to look at that return. What was the return on investment? That $110 million investment resulted in a billion dollars of additional investment in the district along the Riverwalk. So there are good environmental arguments for what we're talking about, 
There are good health benefits for people in wildlife. There are good ecological benefits. There are good social arguments for doing this. And it is so heartening to see this all come together in Detroit's new waterfront porch. The perception for over 50 years that the Detroit River was nothing but a polluted river in the Rust Belt, right? And then it started cleaning up. And this Detroit River is providing ecosystem services, ecosystem benefits to so many millions of people in Southeast Michigan. That is really important to realize too. I like to compare the difference between environment, the word environment and ecosystem is like the difference between house and home. House is something external and detached, like we think of environment. But home see yourself in, even when you're not there. And so we have to remember that what we do to our ecosystem, we in fact are doing to ourselves. So if the Detroit River is now cleaner, and we see the return of bald eagles, peregrine falcons, osprey, lake sturgeon, lake whitefish, walleye, mayflies, if those species, it's cleaner for you and I as well. And that's really important to remember. Yeah, and it is, I think, easy, especially in in a densely urban area to kind of forget about the relationship between our fate and the fate of the bald eagle or the even the sort of, you know, the mayfly, the kind of lesser insect species that you don't think about. Yeah. And what an opportunity Detroit has, you know, like there's, I don't know, three or four important bird areas designated by National Audubon. You know, we, uh, we're the only international heritage river system in North America. We're the only international wildlife refuge. I, I said we have a, over a hundred species of fish, 350 species of birds. How many cities have that in their backyard? What an opportunity to inspire a sense of wonder. What an opportunity to develop the next generation of conservationists, environmentalists, and sustainability entrepreneurs. You know, to that end, you mentioned that the Riverwalk has is a sort of ongoing project that there are different parks being built along it, different greenways connecting things up. Are there other sort of grand scale projects like the Riverwalk happening in Detroit? Yes. Thinking bigger, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan has looked at an interconnected set of blueways, which are water trails and greenways called a Great Lakes Way. So the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan is leading that initiative. And clearly water unites us, but this big vision for a Great Lakes Way will help further connect people to these amazing natural resources and will connect communities to each other on a regional scale. So it's a pretty exciting project that's underway right now. That is exciting. Very exciting. On the subject of projects underway, John, I was wondering if you, I know you're working on another book for MSU Press uh, forthcoming likely next year. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I've been working for the last four years on the International Joint Commission identifies these most polluted areas of the Great Lakes. Think of them as like pollution hotspots. There are 43 of them. So we've been looking at, from a scientific perspective, 
um, what has been achieved in terms of cleanup of the Great Lakes, and what have we learned? What lessons learned can we share with others who are going through similar things? As part of that, of course, we did a special issue in a journal and a monograph, but I've worked on this now for over 35 years, and I've been so honored and fortunate to meet so many wonderful people who fell in love with the Great Lakes at an early age and then devoted their careers to leading grassroots efforts to clean up these most polluted areas of the Great Lakes. So I'm writing a book called uh, uh, Great Lakes Champions, uh, these people who have led these grassroots efforts to clean up the most polluted areas of the Great Lakes. And it's really compelling stories. Places like uh, uh, Hamilton Harbor in Ontario, which is the steel capital of Canada, and the St. Lawrence River, and the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, and Fox River in Green Bay in Wisconsin that had uh, one of the highest densities of pulp and paper mills in, in the United States. And so these stories individually are really interesting, but collectively, it shows how people can make a difference. And I'm hoping it will inspire the next generation of Great Lakes champions. Yeah, well, we'll really look forward to that. And I, I'm right there alongside you, hoping that both uh, the future work and this current project, uh, Waterfront Porch, will show people what's possible and give us some hope in the face of, you know, a, a worrying situation, as you described it. Absolutely. You know, if, if this can be done in a city that has had seen a lot of hardship, like Detroit, if, if this kind of cleanup of the Detroit River being one of the most polluted rivers in the United States, if we can see this level of progress, this level of revival, it can be done elsewhere and this can give hope to others. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it, John. I want to, before we go, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really enjoyed learning the story of uh, Detroit's waterfront porch and I encourage folks to check out the book. Thank you, Kurt. It was a real pleasure to be with you this afternoon. John Hardig's book, Waterfront Porch, Reclaiming Detroit's Industrial Waterfront as a Gathering Place for All, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thanks to you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. 